The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the content providers and should not be viewed as an endorsement of any product or service. Nor does it reflect the views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. I love that uh, carousel kind of uh, music behind that uh, disclaimer. (laughs) (laughs) Boop, 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 boop. This is Doug Powell, and I'm the president of the Alliance on Aging and Vision Loss, AAVL, and I'm happy to welcome you to this month's uh, call where we're going to, we mostly, Danette, uh, is going to talk with um, Chris Peterson from Penny Forward about retirement funds and, uh, you know, the, the kinds of things that we need to be looking out for as we get older and want to maintain control of our finances. So without any further ado, uh, I will hand it over to Danette Dixon, who's our facilitator today. Yes, yes. Hello, everybody. Oh, my gosh, they're mowing the lawn out there. They need to stop or (laughs) or go away. So um, welcome. And, yeah, we're going to talk to Chris Peterson and and the person that I can't remember the name. Chris, who did you ask? Did you bring with you today? Payne Brolin. Hayne Berlin. Well, welcome to both yeah. of you. And yeah. we're going to talk to both of you for about um, probably for the first 40 minutes, and then we'll open this up for, for questions. So if you can stay muted, that would be awesome. And what I did, I could not think of any questions. So what I did was I sent an email out to AAVL list. And trust me, I got lots of them. So <laughs> the, the first question would be accessible online banking those who do accessible online banking do you have special tips that you could do sure um so first of all thanks for having us uh my name is chris peterson i'm the founder and ceo of penny forward penny forward is a nonprofit organization um that is building financial literacy education programs for the blind community and i brought with me kane brolin who's a member of our our board of directors and is also a blind certified financial planner and so where i maybe get stuck he will be able to fill in some of the gaps and uh uh danette i hope you'll give us uh some time to give our contact information towards the end of the call as well um online banking uh, as you may know, there are two ways to access online banking typically. Most larger banks and most smaller banks these days have a website that allows you to access your account information as well as an app that you can use on your smartphone or, or uh, an iPad or tablet kind of device. I also want to point out that Most banks are still offering bank by phone services. And in fact, some of their bank by phone services have gotten really, really good. Um, Some of the large banks are now using Alexa technology. I'm sorry if I set off anyone's device um, to allow you to talk to their phone banking systems to get what you want. So if you're used to banking by phone and are a little bit uncomfortable with trying online banking, banking by phone is still going to be around for the foreseeable future and it is getting better and better. Um, When you access your bank's website uh, to get uh, online banking, you will need to first find a a link and this is sometimes the hardest thing to find on the on the bank's website it's usually called login sometimes that's one word l o g i n sometimes it's two words l o g space i n and sometimes it's sign in and usually that's two words but not always so um you're going to when you when you first get to your bank's website you're going to get a lot of sort of general information that you probably already know about the bank itself the kinds of services they offer and uh, maybe where your bank's 
branches are located. This is information for people who aren't already customers of the bank that maybe are, are trying to find out more about them and want to learn. So you're going to need to find that login or sign in link. And uh, you're going to want to select it by pressing the enter key or clicking on it with a mouse if you do that. That will ask you to enter a username and password. If you don't know what your username and password is for your online banking account, there is usually a link that you can follow to register for one. You may need to know uh, some personal information, such as your name, your social security number, and your date of birth in order to complete that registration process. Or you may need to know something like a bank account number to complete that registration process. While the registration process is fairly similar from bank to bank, because banks are required to set uh, they're required to satisfy some federal re regulations about this kind of thing. Um, the process isn't guaranteed to be exactly the same, unfortunately, from bank to bank. But you can often call your bank and speak to someone on the phone and have them talk you through it if you're having trouble. Um, once you've registered for and signed into your online bank, then you will be given a list of your accounts. This is particularly handy and is really nice, um, a nice improvement over uh, bank by phone because you don't necessarily need to know your account numbers in order to access your your accounts. You'll you'll be able to to read a list right on the main screen that usually contains. Um, uh, your checking account, a savings account if you have one, any mar money market accounts, credit cards that you might have with the bank are sometimes listed there. Loans that you may have taken out from the bank are uh, sometimes listed there. And you'll also read their, um, their balances. Um, this is often, but not always, in a table format. So you can use the control alt and the arrow keys if you're using uh, many screen readers to access the different columns in the table. And if you click on each account, you'll be taken to a screen where you will be able to view a list of transactions. And that list of transactions should tell you things like what the uh, business the transaction was from, is so if you shopped at target or walmart it should say target or walmart not every bank by phone service does that it should also tell you how much you spent or how much you received um, and it should tell you when the transaction occurred and sometimes it'll tell you what the account balance was on the at the time that the transaction occurred so this can be very handy for uh for balancing your checkbook um, or just keeping track of the state of your online bank account. I want to stress that just by looking at this information um, or listening to it, it is very difficult to mess anything up. So I don't want you to be afraid of this process. Um, and I stress that because I have spoken to some people who are, are worried about accessing their bank online because they are afraid of that. Um, banks are required to follow very strict security standards, so your information is safe if you use your banking uh, if you use banking services online. And they've made a, a great deal of effort to make sure that it is as easy, if not easier, than accessing your banking information by phone. Um, you will have access to lots of other services that you may or may not choose to use. Some of them include moving money from one account to another uh, or moving money to accounts outside of your bank. Um, you can also pay a lot of your bills through online bill pay services that a lot of banks offer. You can either do that one at a time as bills come up, or if you have a bill that is is the same amount every month at the same time, you can set that up on a schedule to have it automatically paid 
through your bank account um, uh, on that schedule. Uh, there are also some services that allow you to send money to your friends and family. One of them that's very popular is called Zelle, and uh, it allows you to send money to someone using their phone number or their email address. It's a little bit like PayPal or Cash App or Venmo. Uh, some of the uh, uh, are some of the other names you might have heard for doing this. Um, but Zelle is is offered by quite a few larger online banks directly in their website. Let's talk briefly about banking using a mobile app, because in my opinion, banking using a mobile app is sometimes a little bit easier to do than than banking through a website if you have a smartphone. Typically, you can download the bank's mobile app through the iOS app store or the Google play store. If you have an Android phone um, and uh, you're looking for the name of the bank, I'll use capital one as an example, because I bank with capital one. So you'll look for the capital one app. You'll read about the app to find out that the app is published by capital one and you'll download it. And uh, the first time you open it, you will be asked to either register or to use your username and password to log in. Once you've logged in with your username and password for the first time, you can choose to uh, enable logins using either Touch ID to log in with your fingerprint or Face ID to log in with your face, which saves a lot of time and effort if you just don't want to or are not able to remember that username and password that you use to log into your bank. Um, mobile apps typically only give you access to things that you can do in the mobile app, and they tend to be a lot simpler to use than websites do. Um, so again, you will expect to be presented with a screen that will give you a list of your accounts and their balances. And if you tap on any one of those accounts, you will be taken to a screen that will allow you to view the transactions that have occurred in that account from newest to oldest. Um, and you will have a lot of the same options that you would have had through the website, being able to uh, move money from one account to another within the same bank, um, doing a transfer from uh, one of your bank accounts to an account in another bank if you need to, or potentially sending money to your family and friends using something like Zelle is usually supported by a, a lot of these banks. Um, a lot of banks have very accessible interfaces. We've learned this by talking to a lot of blind people who use online banks and mobile banking apps. Some of the ones that people seem to really like are Capital One and Chase and Wells Fargo. Um, well, it's not technically it's a bank, it's a credit card. Uh, many people say really good things about the Discover Cards mobile app, and they also offer a savings account that you can access. Um, but people also say a lot of good things about uh, some of their smaller, more regional banks. Um, so even if you are banking at a more local bank and you prefer to go in or talk to someone on the phone most of the time, it's worth giving it a try because they uh, may have a, a very accessible interface. At least that's what we're hearing from a lot of people that are doing this. Anything, um, Danette, that you think that I might add to that answer? I don't want to take up too much time here. No, I think you covered it very well. Okay. Chris, we do can... you want to speak a minute about security of using Zelle and Venmo and that kind of thing? Sure. I can speak a little bit about that. So mm -hmm. um, the security of using Zelle and Venmo is, is uh, um, if you know who the person is that you're sending money to, the process to send money to a person that you know is very secure. Mm -hmm. um, 
There are ways if you make a mistake and you say send money to a person that is uh, not somebody you know. Say you you transpose two digits in a phone number or you get an email address wrong or something. Uh, there there are ways with a lot of these uh, platforms to notify them that you made a mistake and uh, pull the money back. However, um, that can be a lot more complicated. So one of the best ways that I can recommend to make sure that you um, send money safely with, uh, uh, with a platform like Zelle or something like that is to start out with a small amount. Um, maybe type in someone's email address or their phone number and send them a dollar and and then confirm with them that they got it um, so that you know that you've got their their information correct. And then if you need to send them a larger amount, say, you know, $50 or $100 or, or even thousands of dollars, <laughs> then you can send them the rest of their money knowing that it's going to the right place and that you don't have to try to worry about having made a mistake and sent, sending it to somebody that you don't know and that you, you didn't want it to go to. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Thank you. And we'll go on to the next one. What are some things that you need to keep in mind with working with a financial advisor? And for people that are in low income, is a financial advisor necessary? Ah, so here's a question uh, where, uh, Kane, I'm going to pull you in at, um, <laughs> during this, uh, this answer. So I, uh, please find your unmute button. Um, I think a financial advisor can be very helpful no matter how little or how much income you have uh, for different reasons. Um, one of the things that a lot of people recommend that you know about a financial advisor when you first start to work with them, though, is how they get paid. And there are essentially three different ways that a financial advisor might get paid. And we talk about them because they, while they're not supposed to, they can influence the kind of advice that a financial advisor might give you. Some financial advisors work entirely on commission, meaning that they don't get paid unless you uh, invest money with them or buy an insurance product with them or something like that. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are unscrupulous. Um, they go through very strict licensing exams to um, and, and uh, have to agree to a strict code of ethics in order to practice as a financial advisor. But knowing that they're not getting paid unless you are having them manage your money somehow is, is helpful to you uh, to understand the kind of advice that they might be giving you and whether it's the right advice for you. Uh, the second model is uh, a combination of a flat fee uh, along with some commissions for products that um, that a financial advisor might sell you. And uh, a flat fee might be assessed for the time they spend with you, maybe helping you to develop a plan. Uh, and if you chose to buy products from that financial advisor, you uh, uh, they would you would know that you, that they were getting paid more because you did that, but you would also have the option to go out into the marketplace and buy those types of products yourself if, if the plan was uh, all you really needed. And finally, there are some fee-only financial planners that only charge you for their time, and uh, they might help you to uh, to develop a financial plan. They may recommend products or types of products that you look for, um, but they won't make any money off of you purchasing those products uh, no matter what. Um, one of the types of things that you want to look for when you're working for a financial or looking for a financial advisor is somebody who acts as a fiduciary. A fiduciary is a, is a kind of a standard that says that that person must work in your best interest, not in their best interest. You would think that every financial advisor would be working in your best interest, but uh, acting as a fiduciary specifically says that that is is what they that is the standard that they are following. So uh, 
definitely ask a financial advisor if you're interviewing them, if they act as a fiduciary, um, as well as asking them how they get paid. Finally, um, financial advisors should be able to give you information in ways that you understand. You should never feel pressured to make a financial decision, especially a big financial decision. And if you feel pressured, then maybe that's a red flag to go and find somebody else. Um, a financial advisor should be able to explain concepts in terms that you understand. They may use financial terminology, but they will typically explain what that financial terminology means, and they should be able to break things down into concepts that you understand, even if you don't know what that financial terminology means. Um, those are some things that come to my mind. Kane, were you able to unmute? And uh, do you have anything to add to that answer? Yeah, Chris, I think that was a wonderful uh, rundown of the different uh, flavors, if you will, of financial advice and the different forms of payment. Um, I am what is called a duly registered advisor. I've chosen to work in a situation where I can either get fees for service or fees for managing over time a certain amount of money, or in some cases, commission for doing a one-time sale of a particular investment or an insurance product. So, um, you know, not, not to muddy the waters too much, but I do want to uh, just add one thing. There is actually a specialized type of financial advisor that has the added training and licensure to claim expertise in special needs situations. And I would imagine most of us on this call have some degree of interface with special needs, um, either through kids or grandkids or just ourselves. I mean, if we grew up as a, as a blind person the way I did, it has always been deemed uh, that I had a special need. And, and so there's, there's things that an advisor uh, with that type of designation can help with that most of them in uh, in my industry are not particularly versed in. And that is things like Medicare, Medicaid planning, um, the proper use or when not to use an ABLE account. I know we'll, we'll probably cover that later, so I'm not gonna go into great depth about that. Um, but how, for example, the sort of income that you have from uh, job earnings, from investments, from other things, how those interact, uh, good or bad, uh, against social insurance programs like um, Medicaid or things like SSI, SSDI. I, I, and, and I do happen to have the certification of Chartered Special Needs Consultant. Um, that's becoming a more well-known designation. And so if you want to know what kind of a financial planner might stand out best, and being able to work with folks that are blind or maybe have other disabilities, uh, look for somebody like myself that has the CHSNC designation. And that way, a lot of these issues that are common to us will not seem like they're on the planet Mars to the advisor that you happen to speak with. All right. Perfect. Thank you. Okay. Next question would be, are there ways to access other investment information in in an ultimate format? You know, that's a really good question. And the answer is maybe. Um, a lot of financial planners, a lot of financial services companies are now able to provide information electronically. Much of that information is provided in PDF formats and PDF formats can range from being entirely inaccessible to being entirely accessible. Most of them are somewhere in between. Uh, but if you are comfortable with a PDF file format, then uh, you, may, uh, you may at least want to ask your financial services company whether you are able to get information that way. They may want to provide it to you in that format anyway, because it saves them money on paper. Um, a, uh, a possibility exists that you may be able to get information from a financial services company in Braille. 
many banks offer bank statements for savings accounts and checking accounts in Braille. Um, a, a lot of them are produced by a nonprofit organization called Horizons for the Blind in Chicago. So if you are looking for a bank that you can get your statements in Braille from, uh, you could reach out to Horizons and, and they can let you know which banks they work with. Um, but it's also worth asking your bank if they provide that or if they would be willing to look into providing that. A lot of large banks do, and some banks are willing to look into it if uh, if they don't already. Um, it just takes finding the right person. Uh, on the financial advisor side of things, um, it is going to depend a lot on the willingness of the financial advisor to figure out those kinds of details for you. Uh, someone like Kane, who reads Braille, uh, may be equipped to provide you, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot here, Kane, but may be able to provide you with documents in Braille if that's a format that you need. Um, but that doesn't mean that financial advisors who are not blind won't be able to do that. It just means that uh, it's up to you to ask and maybe put a little pressure on them to see if that's possible. The more we ask, the more likely it's going to be that we can get financial information in alternative formats. And I believe, by the way, that that should be a right, not uh, something that we should have to ask for. Kane, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I would say that in my experience, it's pretty commonplace that where financial services firms want to take us to is not just to archiving uh, monthly statements in a static format like uh, Braille, but to provide us online sort of up to the minute or up to date access to uh, your accounts via the web or via a mobile app and, and a financial system. I would agree with Chris that it, it, our mileage varies depending on which company we use. And, you know, because I'm I'm in the business with a particular company and I'm limited to who I can personally do, do business with, I have not had the opportunity to play around with everything that's out there. I have found in general terms that Schwab works pretty well. If you're looking at say these firms that provide do-it-yourself or discount brokerage services and research services, Schwab's interface and Fidelity's interface, um, when I have managed to look at them, um, have proved to be pretty accessible, uh, that I can make changes to what's in my account and I can see what the positions are and how well they've done and the portfolio performance and all of that. Those two overall seem to be pretty good, but those are certainly not the only two uh, that are workable. Um, I know Chris also mentioned online banking, or you guys have brought it up. Uh, if you have investments, uh, let's just say that maybe it's in a 401k plan through a place that you work at, um, it is possible to link that account electronically with other accounts that you have, like the bank account that you've got. So, you know, maybe you have money in a few different places. I know a lot of people are like that. They have an investment account, they might have a bank account in two or three different institutions or credit unions, because those are designed for different purposes, but maybe you all wanna, you wanna see them all on one page. If you know the usernames and passwords to all of those services and can link them together, a lot of times through your brokerage account or even through your bank, through the one of those services, it is possible to see everything you have and even to move money back and forth between companies uh, online. And I have found that when I've tried to do it, that generally worked pretty well and I, I did not need any help to do it. Um, I happen to be totally blind. Um, so that that would be my my answer there. I, I have a couple of other thoughts I, I could bring up about online banking too, but for the sake of time, let's get to other questions and maybe what I was going to mention will come up in the mix anyway. So another question is why should you buy into an ETF? And can you explain what an ETF is? I am going to 
totally defer to Kane on this because this is his area of expertise. Okay. Thank you. Okay. An, an ETF, first of all, let's kind of break out what those letters mean. And let's begin with the end in mind. Let's go to the F. The F is a fund. And so if you know that something is a fund in investment terminology, know that that does not mean a separate individual investment. So if you buy a fund, you're not buying uh, 10 shares of IBM stock or Tesla stock or any other singular discrete type of investment. It means that when you buy into a fund, you're buying into a pool of different stocks or bonds or other types of investments that all should have commonality in what they are designed to do. So an ETF might include shares of Tesla, but it might include shares of 100 other companies that are also involved in the electrified vehicle space. So you're buying a pooled investment that has a whole bunch of stuff in it, but you should first come to understand the, the nature or the class of different investments that that fund is going to embody. And you can, should always insist on getting information about that that you can read before you actually buy into that F or fund. Um, what does the ET mean? The ET means exchange traded. It used to be that when you bought a mutual fund, you had to go to a website or to a company like Fidelity or Vanguard or Janus uh, or Dreyfus. Some of these names might be familiar to, to you from years past. And you used to just have to buy the investment directly from that fund company were from a broker who sold them. And a lot of times those funds, you weren't just buying the fund, you were paying a pretty hefty commission and what is called a 12B1 fee, not only to the mutual fund company, but also to the advisor that is selling it to you. So a mutual fund that's, that is managed well can do a lot better than an individual stock might do in that one area. So there are reasons that would justify the payment of a commission, but as the marketplace has gotten more competitive and more accessible to more people, lower prices and more efficiency are being demanded. So a mutual fund is a fund that you as an individual can buy in the market through a broker or through a website without requiring a middleman, without paying very much of a commission at all. Sometimes it's a zero cost trade to buy or sell an ETF. If you want to, you can buy it at 10.30 in the morning and sell it at two in the afternoon if you want. With old style mutual funds, that trade only occurred at the end of the day. So if you thought something was a really good deal and you put it in order to buy it at 9.30 in the morning, you wouldn't get your order executed until four in the afternoon. Maybe the stocks in that fund zoomed way up between the time that you wanted to buy or place the order and the time you actually got something. Or they zoomed way down uh, on the day that you were going to sell it. And so uh, with an ETF, you can be more flexible, you can be more cost effective, and you can actually get credited for owning something the minute after you've bought it instead of just waiting for the closing price and then to boot having to maybe pay someone a pretty sizable, maybe four or 5% commission on top of that just to own that fund. So it's a really, a, it's just a more efficient, modern, do-it-yourself way of putting mutual funds into your portfolio of investments. Um, and yes, it does make sense for the beginning investor to buy an ETF, provided it's the right ETF for you, because you can buy very small amounts, um, as I've said, in some cases for very little commission, perhaps none at all under the right circumstances. All right. Right. Perfect. 
Thank you. This might go along with this, that same thing. So here's the next question. How can a blind person find what neutral, neutral funds have performed over two or five or 10 years? Yeah, so this is another area where Kane is probably going to have a lot of good answers, but I'll just say um, one of the the great things about the time that we live in is access to the internet. Um, typically, the performance of a specific fund is stated in exactly those terms, how, how well it's performed over the last year the last three years, the last five years, the last 10 years, and and um, over its entire lifetime. These are averages. So a fund that has performed, uh, that, that has had a rate of return of 10.5% over its lifetime has sometimes had a rate of return of 10.5% in any given year. Sometimes it may have had a rate of return of minus 2% in any given year. And sometimes it might've had a rate of return of 20% or 7%, but all of those average out to being 10% if you average them out over the course of however long the fund has been around. So the, uh, the reason that we get those statistics are because many people wanna know, well, how well has the fund done over over the last year? Thinking that maybe it's going to continue behaving kind of that way over the next year. That's not always true, but it might be something that somebody thinks about. Um, and then uh, some people may want to know why, uh, how, how well the fund has done over the course of five or, or 10 years, because they intend to invest in that fund and, and have that money sitting there for five or 10 years. And they want to kind of have some idea of how that fund might do over the next 10 years. Um, you'll hear a phrase uh, thrown around all the time. You hear it in commercials. You hear it in uh, 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 TV and radio shows about investing. You'll, you'll read it on the web that says past performance does not guarantee future results. All that is trying to say is that the future is the future. No matter how hard we try, we can't 100% predict how everything is going to go in the future. Um, we just don't, <laughs> we don't know what's going to happen. So, uh, um, well, it's good to to pay attention to what's happened in the past and and uh, to guess that that same thing might happen in the future. Uh, you also have to pay attention to what's going on in the present and uh, try to make some guesses about how current events might affect the future as well. Kane, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, at, just from a practical standpoint um, or an accessibility standpoint, uh, if you go on to the website of a mutual fund company, um, I'll just pick uh, an ETF. Uh, based uh, company since we've been talking about that. Let's just say it's uh, iShares or let's say it's Vanguard. They've got a lot of ETFs these days. Um, each fund that you might be considering or that somebody told you about should have a page on their website that you can go on to to get performance numbers return numbers, things like that in a tabular format, the way Chris was describing. But it should also describe in plain language the kinds of companies that that fund invests in. Are you getting stocks or are you getting bonds? Are you getting companies based in the United States or outside of the United States? Um, how, does it, how does the company know when it's time to buy an investment or sell an investment inside of the fund. You can look and see how volatile, how much the value goes up or down on any given day or any given year compared to other things that are like it. Aside from just performance, it's always good to compare how a particular fund or ETF does in comparison to others 
that are like it. And so some of those websites, most of them will contain figures not only on how your uh, fund has performed, but how well it's performed compared to something else that, that claims to be like it. Out of all of the things that specialize in electrified uh, vehicle technology or lithium technology or large company US-based stocks, um, how is it done? Because maybe you're in the right space, but maybe you've picked the wrong fund and maybe there's something else that's uh, just as inexpensive that's done 4% per year better than what you were told to pick. And so a lot of times that comparison is good to know about. So look for a fact card or a fact sheet on the web or through that app that gives a detailed plain English description of the not only the performance, but the objectives that the fund is trying to achieve, which you would be buying at that time. And I found usually that stuff is pretty accessible these days. Mm -hmm. All right. Perfect. So um, we're going to go to Sheila. Sheila, is there any hands raised? And if so, you can call on them. And Doug, do you have any comments before we go to hands? I do have more questions if there's no hands, but let's go to questions first. Let me, Doug, right. anything? Yeah. Let, me, let me ask real quick. There used to be something called Morningstar, which would compare funds and be, you know, be, uh, and be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, the objective about it, they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't have a, an ax to grind in one way or another. Uh, are there still uh, places like that where you can go to compare funds? Morningstar is still out there and I still use it. Um, this is Kane speaking. Um, and I actually, a lot of times I go on to just the bare bones retail Morningstar site. It's the same one that you guys could use, even if you're not an investment professional, because I have found that in most ways that's pretty accessible. You can even just do a Google search for the name or the ticker symbol, the, the symbol you'd use to purchase it um, in the market. If you have a particular fund you wanna know more about, and you can pull that up on Morningstar, and it'll give you a lot of those performance numbers, plus how many stars its analysts have given. Uh, let's say one through five is their rating. Um, and if you pay a small subscription fee, you can get detailed commentary as well. But I have a bone to pick with Morningstar, because really, you're not supposed to have to already know what you're looking for when you go into a service like Morningstar. If I want to buy for my clients a mid-size uh, U.S. company stock fund, um, but I maybe don't know what the best ones are out there these days after all the fluctuations that we've had in the market and after the pandemic and all of that, um, I should be able to come in with a fresh uh, set of expectations or a blank slate and have Morningstar just give me what funds are it ranks that are in the top 5% of that category. And I have not found a way to make it do that. They have a professional tool out there that you can subscribe to called Morningstar Advisor Workstation. It's designed for people like me. And I'll be the first one to tell you that as far as I'm concerned, that's an inaccessible product. Um, it may have gotten a little better, uh, but when I found out that the guy who founded Morningstar started out as a ham radio operator when he was a kid. I thought this dude must know some blind people because a lot of us have been ham operators at one time. And I wrote a personal letter to the guy and I said, get your stuff together, make it accessible. Never heard back, never even got an acknowledgement. So um, again, it's kind of a mixed bag of results, but I would say that if you know two or three specific funds that you want to compare and find information about, um, and you know how to identify them, you can type that into Morningstar and get pretty quick accessible information about how they've done. Um, I just don't like the inaccessibility of their filtering and research tools for those of us that want to dig deeper or may not know exactly what we're looking for yet. I'm not an investment professional, but I will say that I have been able to get uh, comparison lists out of Morningstar 
but not by going to morningstar.com. Um, I have been able to get them by Googling something like Morningstar S&P 500 index funds, and then and then it'll spit out a list of, of all of the S&P 500 index funds in a table with its ratings and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, rates of returns over the past one, five, 10 years and lifetime and, and so forth for me to compare. I don't know how well that compares to the uh, uh, advisor grade uh, tool, but um, that is a technique that I have used with some limited success. I also spend a lot of time reading things like Forbes and Fortune and Kiplinger's and The Motley Fool and uh, other online publications to get ideas for things to to look into. Well, yeah, and in my in my role, there's other things that I can arrive at. There's investment research that is specific to the company that I work for. There's there's packages from other other places too that I can buy into and look at to to dig deeper. But yeah, I'm I'm not satisfied with how Morningstar does it because maybe what I'm looking for is not so much the top 10 returning mid-sized US uh, company stock funds, but how about the 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 10% that are less volatile than others. Right. Uh right. you know, it depends on what metric you're trying to dig into and I I found that Morningstar is highly inadequate in terms of its accessibility of the 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 depth of of process that I would sometimes need to dig into if I'm really doing my job to the utmost. Alrighty, cool. Sheila, any hands? Yes, ma'am. Deb, you may unmute. Thank you for letting me ask this question since it's very basic. I am very uncomfortable with risk or or vulnerability. Um, so I want to know what level of risk or vulnerability would I be exposing myself to by using a online app, uh, online um, mobile banking or online banking? So Deb, I, I don't think that you are exposing yourself to any risk simply by using online or mobile banking. Um, Your information is safe. There is no information that is being published to the internet or that is available to people in any any way uh, just because you used an online or a mobile banking service that wouldn't have been available on the internet anyway. Um, and the federal government requires very strict security measures to protect your information, whether that's information that you provide to a bank using paper uh, or whether it's information that you provide to a bank um, through an online service or a mobile banking app. And in fact, I would suggest that using an online service or a mobile app is less risky in a lot of cases. And think of it this way. If you provide your personal information using a paper form, somebody in the bank has to receive that paper form. They're going to have to enter that personal information into their computer system somehow. When they're done doing that, They should destroy that form or file it somewhere, but they wouldn't necessarily have to. They could fold it up and put it in their pocket and take it home with them. If they did that, that would be criminal. Uh, That would be theft of bank information and also your personal information. But because that piece of paper exists and can be moved around from person to person to person in a bank, your information is at greater risk. And not only is it at greater risk because a bank teller could could choose to steal your information that way or, or uh, uh, a loan officer or some other bank personnel, but what if somebody 
forgets to uh, put stuff away and leaves it on their desk. And then the janitor comes in and cleans up at night and sees your form on the bank. These kinds of things should never happen. Um, but people make mistakes because they're human. And uh, somebody who maybe sees uh, some personally identifiable information um, and uh, maybe is is struggling somehow may see an opportunity to, to use it. Um, because you use an online service, all of that information does not pass through a person at all. It passes directly into the bank's computer system. And therefore, it doesn't give people the same kind of opportunities to access it by accident that paper does. does is that a helpful answer? Absolutely. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, Danette, you have 10 minutes. Okay. Thank your you. next your next uh, hand is Jean. You may unmute. Are you talking to me, Jean Marie? I, yes, ma'am. Your, okay. your, your name comes up as Jean, so I'm sorry. Um, okay. <laughs> That's all right. So my question is you were Kane, I think, was talking about buying an, an ETF at the beginning of the day and then selling it at the end of the day. Isn't that day trading? I'm so confused. Dane? That would be an example of day trading, and that's not something that I specialize in or particularly think is a great idea for most people, but I was bringing it up as an example just because you could do that with an ETF, whereas you cannot do that with a traditional uh, mutual fund as they are characterized now. Um, so that was really just an example. In in most cases, you probably don't have a, a need to do that. But um, what if some really bad news has hit for a company whose stock that you know that you own and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to get out while the getting's good because their earnings are really bad or Maybe they have a lawsuit against one of their core products that they sell. Um, if you found out about that at 1030 in the morning, um, you could go ahead and sell that thing at 1031 and you would not have to wait until the end of the day uh, to have that sale recorded. And, and so the same is true with an exchange traded fund that, that may involve stocks in that same marketplace. So that was really just an illustration. Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, 510 ending in 405. You may unmute. Hi. Uh, California, can you talk about the wisdom of commodities, crypto, and currencies? I'm going to defer to you for for that. We could probably discuss that for a whole hour in and of <laughs> itself. Um, so not going to dig too deeply here. Um, there's a lot of different ways to play the commodities market. And the way I generally would add commodities to someone's portfolio is to buy a an exchange traded product or a mutual fund that represents that commodity or a certain group of commodities. I don't view them as um, a solution to every problem though, but, but commodities can be a way. So you want, you want investments in a portfolio to not all go up and down at the same time for the same reasons. So you want different th things different types of things in a portfolio so that on days when one type of thing does poorly, another type of thing may balance it out by doing really well. And there's all different types of commodities. Um, I am not in the currency business, so I really don't feel comfortable speaking to that. I cannot trade uh, on those markets, uh, making trades in and out of the dollar versus the euro versus the pound sterling, um, you know, I would really probably talk, you know, get get in with a, an FX related group in order to find out more about that. There are 
mutual funds and ETFs that do that as well. Um, these are just different options. Both currencies and commodities are very volatile at times. So if you are a low risk person that would lay awake at night, uh, just worrying about whether you're going to lose that day or whether stuff performed badly yesterday, then I would not get into that area. Those are more speculative areas um, that it, it doesn't hurt to have some of it, but you want to be very careful there and you want to understand what you're buying in. Right. All right. Thank you. Bye. Sheila, who's next? Uh, Beth, and that's your last hand for now, and you've got four minutes. Okay. Go ahead, Beth. Yes. I wanted to ask about um, the, um, okay, like the ABLE accounts, but I also wanted to ask, Yeah. Um, why do they need to charge those taxes on the able accounts? And and can you invest more than um, than say a hundred thousand dollars without losing your benefits? Thanks, Beth. And uh, uh, and and also, where would you go about finding a financial advisor? I live in a little small town. I don't really have access to the internet okay thank you beth thank you yeah. thanks beth um it's nice to hear you again um let's just talk about what able accounts are first of all uh, an able account is a is a tax advantaged account that is available to some of us with people with disabilities it currently is available if you became disabled before age 26. Um, however, those rules are changing. There was a law passed uh, at the beginning of this year that will aid uh, raise the uh, minimum age to age 46. Um, and that doesn't take effect until 2026. So we've got a few years before that's true. But um, uh, that uh, that's important to understand about the eligibility for ABLE accounts. All investment accounts charge some fees, and most bank accounts charge some fees somehow or other. Sometimes those fees are very easily visible, and you know about them very well, and sometimes they are hidden, and um, you may not be very aware of them much at all. Uh, but they they tend to be there. Um, it's there isn't one right right or wrong answer about whether um, financial services companies should charge fees. But I will say that remember that there are people that work at those companies, and um, they're those people are are making a living and feeding their families and and uh, themselves. Um, from from those jobs. And so some of your fees are going to things like paying for a bank teller to be at a bank branch so that you can talk to them or paying for somebody to answer the phone so that you can talk to them on the phone. Um, high fees may not be as justifiable, but that is the main reason why fees are charged is to pay for the the staff that administers all of the infrastructure that goes into those accounts. All right, perfect. I, this has been, we could probably talk about this for mm -hmm. at least another hour. And I do want to give Doug a chance to make some announcements and Chris and Kane to make their, their um, <clears throat> announcements too. So go ahead, Chris. So I want to thank you for having us. Uh, if you would like to reach out to myself or Kane, um, I can connect you with Kane. Our phone number is 888-332-5558. And our email address is pennyforward at pennyforward.com. And uh, our website is pennyforward.com. And you can find all of our contact information there as well. Kane, do you want to give your phone number real quick? 
Yeah, Wait, absolutely. Is this is per Kane, is this your personal phone number or what? Oh, oh no, I'm going to give okay. you a work number. Um, okay. it's the one that is tied in with the licenses and the, the company that I work with. Sorry. <laughs> um, it is area code 574. I'm based in Indiana. Uh, 254 7180. My first name is K A N E. My last name is B, like banana, R O L I N. And I just want to point out as a parting shot, there is at least one ABLE account available that can be sold and serviced through an advisor if you don't feel comfortable doing it yourself. And I'd be more than happy to talk privately with anyone right. who's interested with that. Thank you. Doug, any last comments? Thank everybody for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Kane. Really excellent information yes. and what and really well spoken. So um, I, I really appreciate that. Um, I've heard you before, uh, uh, Chris, and, and I, I'm still impressed. <laughs> so <laughs> thank, thank you. you very much. Oh, and um, thank you all for coming today. And uh, I, I think that's it. Uh, we right. have we have a we have a call every month every uh, month um, uh, the fourth. Uh, Tuesday, the fourth Monday, Monday. <laughs> at 2 p.m. Yes, yes. And thank you, Sheila. And thank you, Bell. Thank You're you, everybody. Welcome.